Last week, we dealt with the archaeology and the geography of the land of Edom. We want to spend some time this evening on the history of Edom. And I want you to be aware that there's a lot more about Edom in the Bible than I'm going to cite. I'm going to focus on highlights as well as a lot more about Edom in the Egyptian hieroglyphic records and monuments, the Assyrian and Babylonian cuneiform annals and chronicles. There is a great deal in the ancient written record about Edom, but I'm going to focus particularly on what the Bible says about it. In fact, the Bible gives us the earliest written mention of Edom as Seir. Remember last time we noted that in Genesis 14, during the time of Abraham, the region which we later call Edom is called Seir. Now you'll note from your handout that I'm dating Abraham at about 2100 B.C., That is the dating that the Bible itself provides. I should note that very few modern scholars accept that dating. If they believe that Abraham was an historical person at all, they date him much later. That is, they date him down into the second millennium B.C., sometime around 1700 to 1800. However, the biblical chronology places him beyond 2000 B.C. at about 2100 which would mean that Jacob and Esau, the twin brothers, may be dated to the 1900s B.C., as Isaac was 180 years old, according to Genesis 35, 28, when he died. All right, now the earliest extant, extra-biblical reference to Edom comes from the so-called Amarna letters. You can see that note on your handout The Amarna letters are a series of 14th century B.C. correspondences or diplomatic texts from kings in the Near East to the pharaohs of Egypt. Exactly, they date precisely from 1400 to 1360 B.C. There are a number of them. Many of them are incidental notes. They're written in cuneiform, which is the language of the Akkadian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, and they mention, and I'm quoting here, the lands of Seir. So there is the name in the cuneiform record from uh, 1300 to 1400 B.C. as it is in uh, Genesis 14 and in other parts of the Old Testament. Now, before we go on to look at the period of the Hebrew monarchy, we should observe the refusal of the Edomites to allow the children of Israel to transverse their land after the Exodus. The story is found in Numbers 20, verses 14 to 21. You may recall the incident as the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness and preparing to come up on the east side of the Arabah and the Dead Sea. They, of course, uh, approached the land of Edom, and Moses and the children of Israel were forced to detour. They were were forced to detour east around Edom rather than going through Edom, which had been a straight way 
towards uh, <clears throat> the plains of Moab. And the king of Edom himself even threatened to come out with a sword against them. Now, I mentioned the incident because it indicates this enmity or hostility between the children of Israel and the Edomites. And it goes all the way back to the age of Moses, which is 1400 B.C., as well as the Amarna era. All right, now that brings us to the monarchy where the first king of Israel, King Saul, fought against the Edomites, as First Samuel 1447 indicates. And he also commanded Doeg, the Edomite, to massacre the priests of the Lord at Nob in 1 Samuel 22, that horrible incident in which the priests of the Lord are slaughtered by this man named Doeg, who is labeled an Edomite. And it is conceivable that that what motivated Doeg to actually take his sword against the priests of the Lord is his enmity or hostility, his national hostility towards the children of Israel. He had an opportunity to, so to speak, uh, <clears throat> destroy them, and uh, that would be a reflection of perhaps the Edomite character. David and Joab campaigned in Edomite territory, according to Second Samuel 8, verse 13, and the title, which is the heading to Psalm 60, this incident in which David <clears throat> encroaches on Edomite territory is also mentioned at the top of one of the Psalms. The result of this was that David and Israel made the nation of Edom a vassal or a servant state with Hebrew garrisons in all of the countryside. And for the next 150 years, the kingdom of Israel and Judah controlled the nation of Edom, that is, from about 1000 B.C., which is the date, the approximate date of David, to 850 B.C. So Edom is actually conquered and controlled by the Hebrew monarchy for over 150 years. Now, before we go on, I want to mention the story of Hadad, or Hadad, the infant crown prince of Edom, who escaped that massacre that Joab and David advanced against the male Edomites in 2 Samuel 8.14. According to 1 Kings 11.14-22, Hadad fled to Egypt in the company of Edomite royal servants, where he lived and even married a member of the Egyptian royal family. He would then return to Edom after King David died to be a thorn in the side of King Solomon. Now, this story of a refugee going to Egypt, returning to Palestine to be the thorn in the side to a Hebrew king, is also similar to that narrative of Rehoboam's adversary, who of course was Jeroboam, where Jeroboam had fled the reign of Solomon. But when Solomon died, as was the case with Hadad when David died, Solomon died, Jeroboam returned to, to divide the United Kingdom of Israel, 
So the Jeroboam became the first king of the northern kingdom, Israel, and Rehoboam retained the monarchy of the southern kingdom, the small two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Now the Pharaoh who gave Jeroboam sanctuary in his time of his flight for safety was named Shishak in the Bible. He's named in 1 Kings 11 verse 40 or Shishonk in the Egyptian records. That's his hieroglyphic or Egyptian name, Shishonk, but it's transliterated by the Hebrews, Shishak. Now, this Pharaoh is important because of a campaign that he made into Palestine in 925 B.C. We have a full record uh, on a monument of the places that he visited in this campaign into uh, Palestine. He recorded it in his own annals, and the Bible mentions it in 1 Kings 14.25-26. In the course of this invasion, uh, Shishak was plundering and taking booty and loot and so on and so forth. He probably entered Edomite territory and approached the port of Elot. We say probably because... The monument becomes a little difficult to read, which records the whole length of his itinerary. If he had gone all the way to a lot, and you may remember on your map that a lot is at the north of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is that right-hand finger gulf on on the east side of the Sinai Peninsula. If he had actually gone to a lot, he was going to a lot for the purposes of establishing Egyptian presence there, over the trade routes that came from the Indian Ocean and through the Red Sea, up through the Gulf of Aqaba, through the King's Highway, which up through Edom, and so on and so forth. So in other words, this was not only an expeditionary uh, route of plunder and loot, this was also an expeditionary uh, route, uh, a campaign of extending Egyptian power, even over the mercantile and the trade routes, both by sea and by land, which came to a a focus at the port of a lot. Now, I had mentioned that Edom was subject to control by Judah for about 150 years, from 1000 to 850 B.C., but it was during the reign of King Jehoram in the middle part of that 9th century, about 850, 850 B.C., that Edom revolted, revolted against Judah and Israel and became an independent power once more. The story is in 2 Kings 8, verses 20 to 22. The Judean kings Amaziah and Azariah, or also known as Uzziah, recovered much of that Edomite territory according to 2 Kings 14, 7 and 22, about 60 years Later, that is, after Edom revolted around 850, then Amaziah and Azariah recovered most of that territory about 60 years later in the 790s to 750s. But about 735 BC, even Edom revolted once again against Judah during the reign of King Ahaz. King Ahaz, the bane of prophet Isaiah and King Hezekiah, Ahaz uh, losing control of the Edomite east, 
because the Edomites attacked Jerusalem according to Second Chronicles 28:17. Following this revolt and the invasion of Judah by Edom, Judah would never again control the nation of Edom. In fact, from the 8th to the 6th century BC, both Edom and Judah were de facto vassal puppets of Assyria and their Babylonian successors. The annals of the kings of Assyria, including Tiglath-Pileser, who was mentioned in the Bible, Sargon II, who was also mentioned in the Bible, Sennacherib, who was mentioned in the Bible, Esarhaddon, who was mentioned in the Bible, and Ashurbanipal, who was called Osnapper, also mentioned in the Bible. All of their annals and chronicles are replete with notes of receiving tribute, or what we would call taxes, from Edom and Judah. So even though Edom became independent in the 8th century B.C., and Judah was independent in theory in the 8th century B.C., in fact, after Tiglath-Pileser had extended the arm of Assyria into the west and captured and conquered, well, his, descent, his successors captured and conquered Israel and carried the ten tribes away and destroyed Samaria. After that happened, <clears throat> then Assyria was the king of the hill and controlled the whole Levant, including Judah and what was left of Israel. And those kings uh, <clears throat> note the fact that and on an annual basis, they received tribute from these uh, nations in the West, namely Judah and Edom. Finally, it was the Babylonians under their king Nabonidus who would destroy Edom as his predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, had destroyed Judah and Jerusalem. The national fate of Jacob and Esau comes to its climax in Babylonian devastation. Please note that the same nation destroyed both of those biblical states. Babylon destroys the state of Judah and Babylon destroys the state of Edom. Now, on the uh, next page of your handout where Nabonidus appears at the top, I've commented on the the discussion of the exact date of the destruction of Edom by Nabonidus, king of Babylon. That date, which used to be placed at 553, is now assigned to 551 B.C. How do we know? Well, because of what you can see through those uh, links, those URLs, and I'll comment on a minute on what they are because they describe what was discovered in 1994. Not 20, a little more than 20 years ago. All this time it's been sitting there. Sitting there for almost 2,500 years. And nobody had ever noticed it. A rock relief, which means a carved out relief of a figure and a text beside that figure on a rock 200 meters high, this is about 650 feet off the ground, above the location of Sila or As-Sila in Arabic. Now, this royal figure appears to be Nabonidus, and the text beside 
him beside his appearance in this rock engages a it suggests a conquest of the region in which this relief is found sila in at the region of ancient edom <clears throat> and in fact that text suggests quite clearly that when nabonidus came to that area he came in the fifth year of his reign and you'll notice the first year of his reign was 555 the fifth year of his reign would be 551 plus or minus now you can see a picture of this relief in that first uh connection uh from the biblical archaeology review BAR because there's a nice two-page article with color photos which shows you the picture of the king and a very dim picture of the text uh, <clears throat> the second link is an article which talks about the text uh, by a fellow named Crowell so uh, if you want to make a note C R O W E L L plus Nabonidus you'll bring up that one page summary uh, <clears throat> be easier than to try to type that all out until we get it up on the website And finally there is a uh, magisterial article investigating the text which is on that relief and translating it but it's only available in French and I put it here for Art Peterson's sake since he might be interested in looking up this article uh, on Sila and its inscription All right so <clears throat> even as recently as about 20 years ago we have a further uh, precise Uh, reflection on how Edom came to its end. In other words, Obadiah is going to prophesy the destruction of Edom and Nabonidus is going to be the fulfillment of Obadiah's prophecy, he's going to destroy Edom. <clears throat> In parallel fashion, Babylonians, the end of both All right, any questions on any of that? I've reviewed those highlights in order to indicate the antagonism, the animosity, the outright warfare between Israel, Judah and Edom. In other words, these the two nations did not get along well with one another. They were not happy with one another. and consequently they mutually tried to conquer one another and that is an essential part of the background to the book of obadiah all right now a second handout and if you didn't pick it up don it's on the chair back there it's marked tonight our second handout is on the structure of the book of obadiah you notice that i always want to talk about how the text is structured <clears throat> how it's laid out the form of a pericope the form of a book is as important as the message in fact <clears throat> form and message reflect and mirror one another now as we look <clears throat> at uh, how this book is laid out what do we always do when denison talks about structure 
What do we look at? Where do you begin? Well, you begin at the beginning. And where do you look next? Marge? You begin and, and look at the beginning and end. All right, so when it comes to a passage, when it comes to a section, comes to a narrative in the scriptures, we look at the beginning and the end. And what do we find here? As you look at verse 1 of Obadiah, and as you look at verse 21 of Obadiah, what do you find? Tell me what you see. You see an envelope. The whole prophecy is enveloped by an Guess. What would you guess? An inclusio. Correct. Very good. How do you know there's an inclusio there, Art? What is the evidence for the inclusio? Which is what? That's one of them. What's the other one? Well, you say, Dennison, you're cheating. Marge, what's the other one? Well, it may not be exactly the same word, but it is a... Okay, what's the relationship between Edom and Esau? What's the relationship between the two names? They're the same. They're synonyms. <laughs> exactly right. So you've got two exact duplications. Now, it's a duplication synonymously in the case of Esau and Edom. In the case of Yahweh, or Lord, and the Hebrew here is Yahweh, what used to be in the King James translated Jehovah, <clears throat> you have a double Inclusio, at the beginning and at the end, you have duplicate terms. And my argument is that those duplications are intentional. In other words, they are an intentional framing bracket, an inclusio bracket, included between the beginning and end of this book, verse 1 and 21, Obadiah say, including within is the narrative of the Lord's dealing with Edom, Esau. So, Edom or Esau at the beginning of the book, verse 1. Esau or Edom at the end of the book, verse 21. Yahweh at the beginning of the book. Yahweh at the end of the book. Yahweh is dealing with Edom, descendants of Esau, from first to last in the book of Obadiah, Obadiah's inclusio underscores the fact that God is dealing with the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And the prophet places that suggestion, that declaration, 
at the aperture and closure of his prophecy. Now you'll notice from your handout, that is number two, that I used that vocabulary, aperture and closure, in the statement there that's underneath the structure of the incusio. What do I mean by aperture? Opening. opening, the aperture of a camera, the opening of the lens of a camera. <clears throat> so aperture means opening, closure obviously means closure. So once again, we're talking about the beginning and ending of a piece of literature. Now here, <clears throat> with respect to the aperture and closure of the book of Obadiah, I'm going to make some comments based upon an article that I have written that will be published in December. All right, so we know that the aperture is verse 1. Closure is verse 2. As you scan or read over verse 1, and then scan or read over verse 21, what motif do you discern in those two verses? Now, the word motif... What does the word motif mean? Art? Theme. Theme, yes. So, as you look at verse 1, what's the theme? What's the motif? It's going to happen to Edom. It's going to happen to Edom. Verse 1. They end up in a battle. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be destroyed. Go out against them for battle. Do what? Well, we've already talked about the fact that Babylonia is going to destroy them, right? <laughs> so, verse 1 is Edom's coming destruction. The end of Edom by the judgment of God, is announced in verse 1. What's announced in verse 21? The rule over Esau. Marge? It's the judgment of Esau. Yes, that is repeated, but two of the three lines are focusing on something different. What is it? Yes, salvation, a deliverance motif, a deliverance into what? Kingdom. The kingdom. Whose kingdom? The Lord's kingdom. A deliverance into the Lord's kingdom. Yes, that <clears throat> Mashiim, Moshiim in the Hebrew. What does that sound like? Moshiim. Sounds like Handel's Messiah, doesn't it? Who's the Messiah? Jesus is the Messiah, Moshiim, the Savior, the Deliverance. This is a messianic motif. It ends up in the kingdom which belongs to the Lord. All right, so we have a destruction or judgment motif in verse 1, the end of Edom. We have a salvation or deliverance into the kingdom of God motif, which is in verse 21, the end of those that ascend Zion's mount. The one is a temporal end, 
The one is an eternal, endless end. All right, we'll flesh that out later as we go on. So, there's also a resemblance by way of motif. That is, there is a motif of judgment in verse 1, and there is a motif of deliverance and salvation in verse 21. Those are antithetical motifs. In fact, they are motifs of reversal. They are the reverse of one another. And in all prophecy, you have that. Every Old Testament prophet gives you the reverse of judgment with salvation or the reverse of salvation with judgment. If God is going to destroy, he's also going to save. If he's going to save, he's also going to destroy. That's the pattern of the Old Testament prophetic narrative. It's always there from Isaiah to Malachi. Here you see it in Obadiah, the least of the small prophets. All right, so the aperture and closure are related not only because of vocabulary, but they're related because of theme. In fact, they're related because of reversal of theme. A prophetic announcement of God's wrath against the wicked Edomites a declaration of God's deliverance for those that belong to the Lord's kingdom. All right, now, Obadiah is quite a skilled Hebrew Hebrew rhetorician. In fact, he's a master of the skill of putting together his aperture and closure, the two parts of his incusio. There are a number of other very interesting features in verse 1 and verse 21, which I want to note. First of all, the prepositions in verse 1. You will notice the preposition in the New American Standard concerning. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. That's the Hebrew preposition lamed. Concerning Edom, la Adam, la Adam, you hear the L sound, okay? Now, that Lamed also occurs in the word against. So, there's a double preposition meaning concerning or about or against in verse 1. The Hebrew word la, which is the preposition for, about, or concerning. Now in verse 21, as you look at the Hebrew text, I know you don't, you can't see it, but as you look at this text, you can see a preposition, New American Standard has it in the second line of verse 21, to judge the mountain of Esau. New American Standard does not translate that same preposition to, which incidentally is the Lamed again, again, La in Hebrew, The second two is hidden in the third line, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Literally, the Hebrew says the kingdom will be to the Lord. All right, so in verse 1, we have the double preposition, which means to or about or against or concerning. In verse 21, we have the same Hebrew preposition, which means to or for or about. Is that an accident? I don't think so. I think he has placed that symmetry there 
for purposes of reinforcing the aperture and closure of the of the of the text. Handout is on the chair in the back. All right, now let's take a look at the direction or the vector in verse 1 and verse 21. Okay, in verse 1, what does the word against suggest? What vector? How many vectors are there? What vector, I, what vector am I signaling with my hand going that direction? Horizontal. Horizontal. What direct, what's the other vector? The vertical. What vector do you have in verse 1? Pardon? I still didn't hear you. No, oh, the vision. No, I'm thinking about what he's saying about Edom. Okay. Is it horizontal? Why? Because it's about Edom. Mm, true. What word tells you it's about Edom horizontal? Against. Against. Very good. All right. Once again, the Hebrew word here is the preposition al. Ayin lamed. Okay. So the direction of the vector is the horizontal. Edom is up against her terminal end. Because the nations are coming against her. Right now in verse 21, what's the vector? Vertical. It's vertical. How do you know? Going up, ascending. And once again, it's a verbal form of that prepositional ayin lamed Hebrew term. Al, going up to the Lord's Zion. Is that a horizontal? No, you've already indicated it's a vertical. Well, where are they going then? Are they going to the earthly Zion? Are they going to the Zion which is present, the Jerusalem below, to use Galatians 4.25 language? Mount Zion. Yes, are they going to the earthly Mount Zion, the horizontal? Oh, it's true, the Psalms of Ascent, you go up. It's a vertical ascent, but is that what Obadiah is talking about? Is that what he's prophesying? Is he prophesying an ascent to the present Jerusalem? That is, the Jerusalem below, the Jerusalem of the earth, earthy. Or is he saying you're going up? Well, let's take a look at Hebrews 12. Keep your finger in Obadiah and turn to the New Testament to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12:22. First person that has it, read it out. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. What? Is that a horizontal? That is not a horizontal. So there's Mount Zion in Hebrews 12.22 being used not of a horizontal Mount Zion or temporal Mount Zion. It's being used of the heavenly Jerusalem, which is what I am arguing 
Obadiah is indicating here in verse 21 of his book. The vertical ascent is the vertical ascent to the heavenly Jerusalem where the kingdom is the Lord's. Right? That's the vertical kingdom which is endless. Right? As we contrast the horizontal end of Edom in verse 1 with the non-horizontal, the vertical, eternal, non-ending of the people who are delivered by the Moshiim and brought and assembled at the heavenly Mount Zion, which is the kingdom of the Lord's heavenly Jerusalem. Well, I'll have time to defend that in detail as we go through the prophecy uh, verse by verse later on. But at any rate, I'm taking, if you have not guessed already, I'm taking a Vossian millennial interpretation of the book in terms of its inclusio style, its aperture and closure form, and the fact that the theology of verse 1 is transcended by the theology of verse 21. All right, now there's something else to note which uh, shows the relationship or symmetry between verse 1 and 21, and that's the assonance which is found here in the Hebrew text. What's assonance? Referring to what? A sonic boom has to do with what? Sound. So what's assonance? Having the same sound. Yeah, so we're talking about things that sound alike. And in this case, we're talking about Hebrew words which sound alike. All right, in verse 1, we have the Hebrew word for the nations, and you can see that in English in that first verse. But in Hebrew, it's goyim. Goyim. You hear the ending? The im. Goyim. Okay? In verse 21, you've already heard this word. We have another word that ends with the im sound in Hebrew. It's the word for deliverers. Moshiim. So we have a goyim in verse 1. We have a moshiim in verse 21. We have an assonantial reflection. The aperture and enclosure have the exact same sound. Repeated. One other assonantial element. In verse 1, you have uh, the term battle in the Hebrew. It's the last word in the Hebrew text. It's the last word in the English translation. The word for battle is milhama. Do you hear the ending? Milhama. Ah, ah. Right, now the last word in verse 21 is kingdom. Maluka. Now notice the sound is the same, even as we have im and im repeated in verse 1 and 21, we have ah and ah repeated, but notice where it is repeated. That sound is repeated in the last verse of verse 1, and in the last verse of, I'm sorry, the last word of verse 1, and the last word of verse 21. They are exactly assonantially similar. The ah ending. Accident? I've got news for you. No, it is not an accident. He has intended to do this because he is signaling 
the relationship of this inclusio paradigm. Now, finally, we've already pointed out the stark contrast between the theme of, or the motif of verse 1 and verse 21, that is the antithetical destiny, the absolute end to wicked Edom and the absolute no end or eternal vector, vector to the delivered people of the kingdom of God. This is a redemptive historical reversal. That is, it's a reversal in history which includes the redemption of the people of God. Condemnation to Edom, destruction and obliteration. Salvation to the people of God's kingdom, redemption and eternal predestination. And if you know the broader story, you know that my word predestination there was intentionally chosen. For Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Ah, yes. Obadiah is playing with a broader paradigm than just simply the history of Judah and Edom. He is drawing on a paradigm which comes out of the sovereignty of God, the absolute sovereignty of God. The decretum horribile, as Calvin described it, the horrible decree, awesome in its terror, but nonetheless accurate in its declaration. For Paul uses it, as you know, even as Malachi uses it, as you know, and Obadiah fleshes it out, as you will come to know if you don't realize already. The redemptive historical reversal is the reversal between that decree, which determines that Esau will be destroyed, and the people of God's love, Jacob's covenant seed, the, the believers out of the seed of Abraham, those who are united to the, the seed who is Jesus Christ, they will be redeemed of the Lord's and into the Lord's kingdom. All right, any questions about that? If you're interested in the details and how it's written up, you can pull up the December KRUX when it's published after the first week in December. If you want a reminder, I'll remind you later on. All right, well, we'll take a break. And we'll come back to look at some other structural patterns in the rest of the book. Continuing with some other uh, structural patterns on your handout, first page of the book of Obadiah. Let's take a look at other patterns beginning with verse 1 and verse 9. As you examine verse 1, which you've already examined, compare it to verse 9, and what do you note? We're looking for structural pattern. Is that a look of all-knowing there, Bob? Okay, it's a look of, I'm happy with my coffee, okay. 
All right, what is the theme? There's symmetry there between verse 1 and verse 9. What is it? Go ahead, Art. It looks like the first one is the beginning of the battle. And then the first what, what terms are symmetrical? How about battle and slaughter? No. No. We've already talked. We've already talked about the one word in verse one. Esau. Bob. Would you? Esau. Yes. Esau and Edom. Edom in verse one. Esau in verse nine. The focus between verses one and nine is on Esau. All right now, verse 10, compared with verse 17. Yes, it's Jacob. Jacob is in verse 10. Jacob is in verse 17. The focus is on Jacob. Notice, focus on Esau, focus on Jacob. That's, again, a redemptive historical focus. They are twin brothers. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Verse 17 and verse 21, what do you see there? Mount Zion. Mount Zion, very good. What focus is this? The focus in 1 to 9 is Edom. Focus in 10 to 17 is Jacob. Focus in 17 to 21. The Zion of Jerusalem in Palestine. Yes, the Zion of God. The Zion of God. The Zion which is the Lord's. All right. So, we've got the national destinies and we have the eschatological projection. Esau, Edom, Jacob, and the Zion of God's eschaton. Right now, there's smaller recursive symmetry in verses 1 to 6. What's the word recursive mean? Repeated. Repeated. Very good. Symmetry, what's that mean? Similar. Similar. Okay, anything else? Alike, okay. Anything else? How about sameness? How about parallelism? Okay, so we're looking at repeated parallelism, repeated sameness. What do you see in verses 1 and 2? Nations is repeated, yes. The nations is recursive. What do you see in three and four? Pride. I didn't understand you, Bob. You see pride. Pride? No, I want words. I want duplicate words. Down. Go ahead, Loretta. Down. 
before down. Put up together. Yeah, bring down, right. The, the phrase bring down occurs in both three and four. And finally, five and six. Phrase, oh how. In Hebrew, it's a ka, which means alas. We, we dealt with that when we dealt with lamentations last fall. <clears throat> All right, it's a single word in Hebrew <clears throat> translated in this uh, phrase. It's a uh, phrase of lamentation. All right, <clears throat> we have a section from verses 1 to 6, which is composed of recursive symmetry. Okay, so verses 1 to 6 have a kind of structural form which recurrently or repeatedly uses words from one verse to the next. So verses 1 and 2 are joined by that symmetry. Verses 3 and 4 are joined by a symmetrical clause. Verses 5 and 6 are joined by a symmetrical word or phrase. All right, now on page 2 of your handout, we want to look at the change that takes place at verse 7. We have a small unit of recursive symmetry, verses 1 to 6. What happens in verse 7? Change gears. Something else occurs. What's the relationship between verse 7 and verse 8? All this detective work. What word do you see in verse 7 that you see in verse 8? The last line of verse 7. The last line of verse 8. Part? Understanding. Understanding. All right, so... Understanding occurs in verse 7. Understanding occurs in verse 8. But in verse 8, we have a word which is repeated in verse 9. What word is that? Or a term, yes, or a term which is similar. It's geography again. Mountain of Esau is is duplicated in verse 8 and verse 9. All right, so look what we have. We have two words in 7 and 8 which are exactly alike, the word understanding. But in verse 8, we have a word added, namely the word Esau, which reoccurs in the very next verse, verse 9. Now, look at verse 9 and see if you find a phrase that occurs also in verse 10. Cut off, correct. <clears throat> All right, so if you're filling out your outline or you're filling out the blanks there, seven blank is understanding, the first blank in eight is understanding, the second blank is Esau, the first blank in verse nine is Esau, the second blank is cut off. In verse 10, the first blank is cut off. <clears throat> and what is 
in verse 10, which is also found in verse 11. It's a pronoun. You is right. The emphatic you pronoun in Hebrew. Okay. Now, in verse 11, something is added that reoccurs in verse 12, 13, 14, and 15. What's the omnipresent word in 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15? Do not? Nope. The day. the day. Yes, the word day. So, in verse 11, the second blank, you should write in day, and then day down to the first word in verse 15. Then in verse 15, we have a word that appear, appears also in verse 16. What word is that? Nations is correct. All right, so the second line in verse 15 on your outline should be nations. First blank line in 16 should be nations. And then verse 16 has a word which also recurs in verse 17. What is that word? Holy. Very good. Holy occurs in the second as the, as the new word in verse 16, which is the first word in verse 17. And verse 17 adds a word which is also repeated in verse 18. Jacob. Jacob is the second word in verse 17 and the first word in verse 18. What's the second word in verse 18, which occurs also in verse 19? Esau. Esau. Very good. So the second word in 18 is Esau. First word in 19 is Esau. What's the second word in 19 that occurs in verse 20? I'll, I'll, I'll give you credit for that, but I'm looking for something else. Possess, yes, possess. And there, this sequence ends. All right, so what are we looking at here? What do we call this type of a pattern? Lemo crochet, very good, Marge. And what does lemo crochet mean? That's a French phrase, which means what? Connected words, the crocheted word, just like crocheting a sweater, crocheting an afghan. You're hooking the skeins, you're hooking the loops together. It's like a chain link fence, okay? So what the Hebrew writer, what Obadiah has done is he's created a chain link fence. He's linked verse 7 to verse 8, and then he's linked verse 8 to verse 9, and then verse 9 to verse 10, and so on, until he gets to verse 11, and then he links verses 11 to 15 together by the same word, and then he repeats his, his uh, bracketing of two words, or a word plus an additional word, up to verse 20. You'll notice that he sets off that section that has the day with four verses. And he follows that section with four verses. So, actually five verses if you count the appearance of the first day. 
So he centers this section on the day of the Lord, verses 11 to 14, by framing it between a pattern of four verse sequences. All right, now we called it lameau crochet, we called it a hook pattern, we called it like a chain link fence, but there is one word that describes what's happening here, and that is the word concatenation. This is a concatenation device. And what's the purpose of this device? The purpose is to show the seamless harmony or the linkage of one thought to another thought by a concatenation of linking the chains in a chain link fence. So you can think of these verses as unique elements which are hooked together by a word which is similar to the previous verse and then a word which is similar to the succeeding verse. So from verses 7 to 20, we have a concatenation. This is a tightly organized unit. This is a tightly woven rhetorical unit. This is a masterpiece of ingenuity as well as divine inspiration. In other words, he has two, we should say he has two structural units here. Verses 1 to 6, smaller recursiveness, and then verses 7 to 20, concatenation recursion. This is brilliant stuff. This guy is no amateur. He may be the smallest of the prophets, but he is no amateur. But what about verse 21? He left verse 21 out of the concatenation. There's no parallel or concatenated word in verse 21. Save the symmetry that occurs, which we've already spelled out, between verse 1 and verse 21. Why? Why does he change his M.O.? Why does he leave verse 21 out of the concatenation? Why does he leave it hanging out there, so to speak, without any hook except back to the beginning? Because by the time he's done with his concatenation, the singular uniqueness of verse 21 displays an openness to a dimension which is unlike the dimensions reflected in the first 20 verses. It is open to the dimension of the kingdom, which is Yahweh, to the Lord. And that is a transcendent kingdom, not of this world. And he places this verse uniquely outside of that, shall we say, downward spiraling, although that's not completely accurate, downward spiraling concatenation. Verse 21 is saying something marvelously different. At least that's my suggestion as to why it's outside the concatenated paradigm. All right, now, this little exercise enables you to appreciate the mastery of literary construction. Now, it's true that you can't see it in the Hebrew text, but the English translation, particularly the New American Standard, is very accurate in using the very same words consistently so that you can pick it up if you look at it carefully. And so you you were able to see it when we commented on it. 
This is not an accident. I want you to understand this is artistic genius. He is writing this of a purpose. He wants to pull your attention to the drama of what he is unfolding as he moves from the first verse to the last verse of this remarkable prophecy. And that brings us to the visualization of the vision of Obadiah. Now, I'm going to go through the whole book in terms of the vision motif. The first verse says, the vision of Obadiah. This book is visual. It was a vision given to him, so it's visual. Use your visual imagination. Use your imagination to see the images that he is describing. This book is replete with things you can see. Rhetorical things you can see. Literary things you can see. Structural things that you can see. Dramatic things that you can see. This is a vision that he's writing of visuals. Things you can see. All this artistry and inspired giftedness rooted in images, visual pictures woven into a magnificent tapestry of color and story and, of course, eschatology. Now, on your handout, I've indicated some words which I'm going to use synonymously as I go through this visualization of the whole book. Tapestry is a synonym of tableau, is a synonym of aras. All three of those words suggest, if you've ever seen a hanging tapestry, a picture of a story, picture or portrayal in, in broad span of a huge curtain-like tapestry of a tableau of a narrative, a aras of a, uh, of a uh, incident or story. All right, now our tapestry begins with Obadiah, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go against her for battle. An international call to arms. And on the arras, the tapestry, we behold the mustering of the armies of the nations. You can see it. You see the nations mustering their armies, mustering against Edom. You see in the portrait the rise of the armed nations and the downfall of the nation of the Edomites. Edom is beginning its great reversal, that great reversal from its elevation to its, to its humiliation is pictured on the tapestry. The tapestry portrays the vaunted, arrogant, Great in her own eyes, Edom being methodically reduced to dust, rubble, ashes, and death. Verse 2, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. National Edom reduced to despite, to abject destruction by the international coalition of verse 1. The arrogance of your heart, verse 3, has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, 
From there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now the tableau before you in verses 3 and 4 enables you to see the rocky crags and the jagged clefts, the high and remote dwellings of Edom, high as eagles' nests, even nests as high as the stars. Surely there is a pregnant image. Edom high and invulnerable. Edom remote and nestled in the mountains of the Arabah and the Negev and the high desert east of the Great Rift. Again, the reversal of the pagan high and mighty laid low, brought down in spite of her living in denial. Who will bring me down in spite of her haughty loftiness? God himself reverses her national pride. I will bring you down. He reduces Edom down down, down to annihilation by the Babylonians under Nabonidus. Edom's great reversal is portrayed on the Aras by the word of the Lord. Now verse 5. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleaning? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. The tapestry that we are viewing displays thieves, robbers, pluckers of low-hanging fruit. All these merchants of assault, plundering, ransacking, looting Edom's hidden treasures. You see on the tapestry the images of pillaging and uncovering hidden treasure stores. The pictures of Esau stripped of wealth. And so valuable, so no valuable is spared, none is left, all, each, every one is rifled from the nook or cranny or curry hole where it had been secreted. Edom's great reversal from wealth to naked barrenness is displayed in verses 5 to 6. Verse 7, all the men allied with you will send you forth to the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Edom's allies, her partners who broke bread with her. You see her former bosom friends turning on her, overpowering her by ambush, by driving or carrying her into exile. The tapestry depicts long lines of captives of Edom chained like mules, stretched out in fetters to her very borders and beyond. All this you see in the vision Obadiah paints upon his prophetic iris or tapestry. That fateful day is a day of of destruction and reversal. Will Will I not, verse 8, on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Not only Edom's mountain cities and strongholds are plundered. Not only are her hidden treasures plundered. That day is a day of destruction for her famous wise men who were revered and reversed to fools by the judgment of God. Her men mighty in famed wisdom are joined by her men mighty in battle. Verse 9, then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman in order that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. 
joined, united in death and destruction are these mighty wise men and these mighty army or or soldiers, the slaughter of the mighty men of Mount Esau, hand in hand with the destruction of her wise fools. Now, verses 10 and 11. Because of the violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. The portrait on the tableau shifts to the violence of Babylon in laying Jerusalem waste by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. And what did brother Esau do when brother Jacob was violated? Verse 11, the tapestry shows brother Esau aloof, removed to the sidelines while his fraternal twin is ravaged, looted, carried off to exile, and long lines of prisoners chained for Babylon. Our artist responsible for the tapestry has woven the face of Esau, the face of Esau into the faces of the Babylonians as if Esau were one of them. And do we see the gloating faces of the standers, the bystanders as Judah is brought to dust and ashes and death? Verse 12, do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his most misfortune. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Esau stands now in our tapestry panel inside the gates of Jerusalem, gloating, rejoicing at the disaster which has fallen his blood brother. We even see Esau reach his looting hand to rob the wealth of Jacob, verse 13. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Laden with money, jewels, gold, treasures, blocking the roads of the fugitives, fleeing Judah's destruction in verse 14. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. Do not imprison their survivors in the day of distress. As in the days of old, Esau will not allow Jacob to pass. But in 586 B.C., he blocks his true, his twin brother and sends him over to prison and to worse. Edom joins Jacob's great reversal, but not as brother, rather as an enemy. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. When the nations have oppressed Judah and Esau, they face now the day of the Lord. Our tapestry in verse 15 shows Esau and the nations receiving the very same oppression and death which they had dealt out to Jacob and Judah. The tableau which had portrayed Esau plundering and oppressing his brother now depicts how that brother is plundered and oppressed by the inexorable divine law. As you have done, O Esau, so it shall be done to you on the day of the Lord. Verse 16. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. Did Esau and the nations drink the cup of victory on God's holy mountain? Our tapestry shows them drinking the cup of wrath 
a cup which contains the elixir of utter annihilation, Esau to be no more. The reversal which fell on Jacob Judah now falls on Edom Esau and his nation allies. But now our tapestry shows the most unexpected pictures, pictures of reverse conditions which are, as it were, life out of death. Here is depicted a new beginning for Jacob and his house, verse 17. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Having been dispossessed by their enemies, the divine and supernatural reversal unfolds in Jacob repossessing their possessions. In fact, our tapestry shows Jacob possessing the mountain of Esau in verse 18. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be as stubble and they will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. Not only the mountain of Esau in verse 18, but the plains of the Philistines and the region of Ephraim and Samaria, Gilead too, in the land of the Canaanites from Zarephath to the Negev, then those of the Negev, verse 18, will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, and they will possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead and the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in the Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. <clears throat> Here is a vision woven into the tapestry by Obadiah which restores Judah to its land of possession, a restoration which contains the final panel in the Aras, the last scene in the tapestry, verse 21. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's, a scene of a kingdom which belongs to the Lord in the final panel of our Orient tapestry a kingdom which belongs to the Lord on a Mount Zion, high and lifted up above the earth, a kingdom which is ruled by messianic deliverers, saviors of Jacob and out of Jacob in the day of the Lord, this day of the Lord which reverses judgment with salvation, a day of the Lord which reverses the kingdoms of this world, Edom, Babylon, Philistia, Canaan, reverses the kingdoms of this world with a kingdom not of this world, an eternal kingdom of an eternal king who is at once eternal deliverer and savior Messiah. The kingdom of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the final portrait on the tapestry of the vision of Obadiah. For if you do not come to Jesus out of this book, you are hopeless. Hopeless. For Obadiah saw him afar off and believed on that day, which he saw. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the wonderful artistry of Obadiah's vision and tableau. But it is a vision and tableau which drives us not to the past history of Edom and Judah, drives us to the present history of the kingdom which is like Yahweh, which is the Lord's. And Lord, we know the king of that kingdom. 
we know the one who is the seed of Jacob, as he is the seed of Isaac, as he is the seed of Abraham. We know that one as the king of the kingdom of heaven. As we study this book in detail, we pray that we, like Obadiah of old, will keep our eyes expectantly anticipating the Messiah, Savior, the Moshiim, comes to deliver his people into the kingdom of the Lord. We pray with faith and with hope in Jesus' name. Amen.